0: Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from the Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction with it. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. And integral to this is mapping out ecosystems and looking for the friction and tension points that exist within. Well, that's what exactly this podcast aims to explore. By interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses helping design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. In this episode, I've taken a slightly different format to the usual time. In the quest to learn a little bit more about the state of artificial intelligence, I've teamed up with Ben Byford, a technologist that runs the Machine Ethics podcast series. In this episode, we interview each other. I've had the pleasure of knowing Ben for around three years, and I've always enjoyed his thirst for knowledge in asking deeper questions about the role of AI in our lives. Amongst many things, Ben's career has focused on applying his theories to games designing, education for companies like Decoded, where he's a facilitator and a teacher, as well as a venture called Eulogy that was focused on connecting academic studies to industry better, something that we can wholeheartedly get behind it. So really, that's enough from me for now, and let's get into the conversation. But the first thing I would like to know, Ben, is actually um, can you tell me a little bit more about the? Okay, to the listeners a bit more about the Machine Ethics podcast and kind of how you ended up uh, producing it.
1: Yeah, um, thanks, Josh. Um, so. I'm Ben Byford. Um, I'm predominantly a designer and maker of things. Um, I got into doing the Machine Ethics podcast after uh, starting to do a presentation on IoT a couple of years ago um, in a Shoreditch festival. Um, and all the conversations I was having in researching the kind of IoT security, uh, so Internet of Things, uh, all these um, new devices which were being brought in at the time into our homes, and all the conversations which I was having with um, various different people in the tech industry were really interesting questions on behaviour change, um, social impact, um, kind of societal questions rather than technological ones, um, and that actually made me uh, rethink the talk I was doing and I moved into a talk which was uh, on machine ethics and to do with all these kind of, um, I would say softer questions, but more um, philosophy questions and and questions around um, ethics and morality and and how um, the tools that we make affect us basically and that's what it comes down to. Um, So the Machine Ethics podcast is is leading on from that and actually talking to amazing people within the industry um people who are pundits or or makers or uh writers or um different types of people about um algorithms machines and ai and the interesting kind of philosophy behind the things that we're making currently and um i was really interested to talk to you josh because uh, some of these things are appearing within um especially IoT, within the city um, and, and development uh, sectors. And um, it's really interesting to, um, to me about how these things could be implemented and how they will affect us in our kind of daily lives almost.
0: It's... It's wonderful to all hear. I mean, it's just a natural thing that we'd end up in this mm. podcast together, uh, having known each other for a little while. Uh, it's interesting because we're both looking at exploring our relative fields. So, you know, in Conscious Cities, it's about um, understanding the humans behind huh, almost the machines themselves, you know, the property companies, the planning authorities, the architects, but those who are also working in policy, but equally in technology. Um you know, and yours very much the same from your point. But equally, there's kind of an identity of the problem there that we're we're still actually separating the issue, and it takes us actually knowing each other a little bit more to sort of bridge that gap. So, you know, in in the built environment in real estate, you know, AI is talked about a lot because it's mm. quite an antiquated industry, and uh, it's you know, it's there are plenty of cases where they still have the silver platter out serving tea at meetings, and you know, certainly in London, it's in lovely, beautiful offices, but right. you know, it, it, but people are questioning whether their their roles will disappear, what will happen to how buildings get put up, et cetera. But yeah. I guess I want to flip that question over to you is, you know, how much is the sort of the built environment, you know, real estate, planning, construction, et cetera, being talked about in the sort of AI circles, if that's, you know, if that's the right way to put it, that you are uh, mixing in and who you're talking to?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting question. I think um... – on face value i haven't seen very much um conversation in that direction um but i think it's easy to think about all the things within that sector that can be affected by um different ai developments um and i think i think we will see a change that we will see in in most industries in um there's a phrase that people use about hollowing out but i think there's going to be a change and i don't necessarily think that the the all industries will be hollowed out in that way um but i think there will be um efficiency gains and innovations which will be coming in um and some of those will definitely affect the the sector that we're talking about here with um planning and, and then development um it's just a no-brainer um where there's data that we, we can harness to produce things then um as humans we um we almost in our curiosity strive to make things um better or different or change things and and part of that change at the moment is is the ai um conversation so i i definitely see things going to be going further in that direction i think it's for me it's to do with um you know being mindful of of that implementation so um we could change this should we or how is this change going to affect us um etc so these are the kinds of questions which i am currently urging people to consider and that comes down to um people who are making the the actual software and making the things to people who are buying the things and um all that chain of um for those people to consider actually how how the impact of these things will affect um, both their business and, and the society at large basically i don't know Can if that's a follow-up question
0: <laughs> to that because it, do you feel that it's a point where uh, the, the lack of questioning oneself in the, you know, the desire to kind of to propel forward, to be innovative, to get a good job, to to move forward, that there is, I mean, there is a lack of questioning the role of the programmer, of the data scientist, of the, uh, whomever the the individuals may be who are looking at this from a data point of view, looking at the algorithms, et cetera, their career. To, are there not enough forums for them to be aware that actually w- we do need to step back? I mean, I mean, we're aware of sort of open AI um, it, over in the States, and I think it's the, mm, yeah. um, I'm trying to remember the name of the other one, um, the african uh, Partnership, I can't remember the name, apologies, everyone. Um, mm. But, you know, on the ground as such, do you feel the Machine Ethics podcast was set up because you weren't seeing enough voices um, questioning their role? And you know what what do you feel is the kind of necessary nudge to uh, to improve that conversation
1: um yeah i i do i did think that i set up the podcast um partially because i was interested in this, that um sphere and i want to learn more and, and to learn more um i cannily uh developed the podcast in order to speak to really really interesting people um so that was definitely part of it and um part of my own personal development personal development but also um I wasn't seeing those voices um broadcast I was maybe hearing what people had to say but I wasn't hearing it in the uh the media and the media tends to have a very um a, a single thread at the moment to do with um this sort of conversation where um the conversation is stuck on the trolley problem or the ideas of being killed by automated cars, and it's uh, it's not actually developing within um, news outlets. So, I see where I'm sat at the moment as trying to develop um, the thinking and exposure at the same time through these podcasts and through my own work uh, with companies um, and developing um, guidelines and such. Um, and I'm currently also part of the um, IEEE uh, conversation on producing guides for um, autonomous systems Um, so they have a um, set of guidelines which you can check out on IEEE Uh, I think it's 7000i um on their website you can find the previous document and that's being updated at the moment to produce uh, better guidelines for companies who are producing such systems and I'm, i've gone off one one uh, i'm trying to, <laughs> no, <laughs> to it's good, it's good. remember the second part that they read. <laughs> uh, well, yeah uh, what was the second part of the question sorry josh um the,
0: the question was you know where you know what or
1: are there platforms
0: missing in right. which people? I mean, I am talking about the technology personnel, the people mm. behind the machine. Um, are there are there platforms missing? for them to have a better form of sort of self questioning and engagement around the concept of sort of ethics within a code, as opposed to, you know, I need a job, I need to do really well and to yeah. be more of an authority.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is a really difficult question. I think that's, um, that's a societal question. Cause I think that comes down to all sorts of jobs, not just the AI stuff. Uh, um, and the AI stuff is, is primed to be really, really good or really, really bad. Um, because of the network behavior um, involved. Um, But I think you could apply that to all sorts of things. I think um, not all scientists or academics or uh, computer scientists are benevolent. Um, they, They often make code in various different ways because of various different... Reasons, um, but most of those reasons come down to money. And I think that is uh, a systemic problem within the industry at large because um, I'll give you an example. I saw a company recently who was a startup and they got some um, uh, A round funding. So they got quite a lot of money uh, pumped into them recently. And their whole pitch is to make it easier for companies to gamify uh, whatever they're doing. So, and their pitch is. Um, how does it uh, that facebook keep you coming back for more they've got these algorithms that finely tune the dopamine levels in your brain by having certain likes um, given to you at certain times and they can hold things back and give you things all at once and they do these cognitive tricks to help you to um, keep coming back to the facebook um, you know world now it's not just a website i guess um, and we can do that <laughs> for your company using our artificial systems and cognitive know-how, and I think that's really interesting as a company. But what they're doing is they are selling it as a thing that will help you sell ads or um, to get people coming back, so you can make money on ads. Um, and that's a s- systemic problem within society that we are—we have the potential to make like fabulous advances in every direction, and it just so happens that a lot of the direction is in eyeballs on screens at the moment um and getting people to look at adverts and that we really need to fight against basically um and there's a really good quote which i can't remember who originally said it but it was um all the greatest minds of the last decade have been working on making people look at ads <laughs> you know um mm-hmm. spend more time yeah. looking at ads um, and i think that is just awful and very pro- problematic and i think the ai um companies that i've seen a lot of um aren't doing any you know there needs to be more questioning about what people are actually doing and you know if you're talking about tobacco companies or something like that there's um is is less societally acceptable to be working at a tobacco factory for example and i think that needs to continue in that sort of thinking is continuing to continue into, society has to make it less acceptable to be doing um ad related jobs or jobs which basically are harnessing human behavior negatively um the end well I mean, <laughs> you're, you're, you're
0: preaching to the choir and the here. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, You know, working with a lot of uh, neuroscientists and cognitive scientists, you know, their views on neuromarketing are very skeptical uh, on one sense, the science and the claims behind it. But but secondly, as you're rightfully pointing out, the morality. But again, it is, as you said before, that's a monetary issue. Mm. And, you know, the retail advertising, the, the consumer based industry tend to be moving quicker. Uh, because their competition is so far greater. There are thousands and thousands of digital advertising agencies and all types of companies like that, that the competitive advantage does need to be uh, coming from somewhere. And Mm. I I think an issue that neuroscience does have is it's it's perceived as this great gimmick and that it's already the holy grail, that it's already, oh, we've worked out how everyone does everything. Quick, put someone, put this EEG cap on someone and we can read all their brain activity when the reality is it's just, it's just not the case. It's, you know, we had an event the other night about EEG, um, which is when it's uh, strapping sort of uh, sensors. Uh, I'm not going to go into the technical side of it, but yep. strapping sensors to the skull cap to determine um, uh, brain activity. And it, it it just determines activity rather than, oh, they were happy, or, oh, they were curious. There's got to be a number, as I go back to that idea of AI, a number of data points or, or taxonomies that you're correlating to, to to actually make an assumption such as whether there was engagement or not. And mm. as you're pointing out, the, the question about sort of where a lot of the brain science is going into technology, um, where the effort is going, is in very, you know, it's that desire to have an answer very quickly. And I think we probably have to be looking at more questions at the moment before rushing to answers.
1: Yeah, yeah, or, or giving people the answers with a caveat. You know, I think, I think that's okay too. Just going, this is what I th- think is happening, and these are the different things we can do with that. We don't necessarily have to sell, um, you know, manipulate people in or try and manipulate people. I have a question for you, Josh. I saw a video recently, which was from uh, Innovate UK, uh, talking about cities. Uh, One of the quotes I thought was interesting, and I'm wondering about your thoughts on it. Um, And he said, our cities will soon be thinking like human brain, thanks to AI and IoT. So I was just wondering what you think about kind of these sorts of technologies coming into um, the cityscape and um, town planning and that sort of thing. I think with a sentence like that,
0: and I must caveat that I do respect a lot of the work that Innovate UK do, um, but I think a video like that kind of highlights the problem. uh, Because we don't know how a human brain thinks. Right. That is the first and foremost. Uh, I, I'm not a technical person, but I remember seeing um, in the University of Southampton, I think it was at some point last year, they believe they've developed a series of Memorista chips that they believe can start to fire these sort of trillions of neural network connections that are relative to how the, the brain reacts, which is mm. trillion of uh, cells and activity firing all in one minute, and no one has a clue what's going on. So, if we only recently are understanding the brain, and then secondly, only just about understanding can the technology even get anywhere near replicating it, there's there's first a technical capacity, then a theoretical one to understand it. So, I mean, from the the tech point of view, going to cities, we're really far away. I mean, you know, stepping back, we can barely get the basics right. Barely get a phone signal in most office buildings in city centres. I mean, it's it, it's actually a bit pathetic. And I think you know this idea of okay, well, let's focus on making a city uh, have a brain. Let's run mm. for that. Let's let's make everything uh, sensor led. Let's make it smart in that way. We we will get there, but at the moment, it's a little bit like polishing a turd and glittering tech over the top. And reality is, things can easily just break apart. Um, You know, I I think the idea of if it's acting like a human, and this is where, you know, we get to that sort of theoretical, you know, side of psychology and neuroscience as well, you know, humans have a self-driven goal. And, you know, there are a number of ways we craft our desires and they're influenced by a variety of points. But, you know, we are a self-actualized, you know, process and and program. um, And we cater towards ourselves and a shallow network around us. And I guess my question is, or, you know, my answer is, you know, how does a city respond to, you know, if we take London uh, to 8 million people or if, you know, if we have the the megacities of the site it's meant to be, I feel it's only going to be just like our political systems which just cannot cater to everyone and they are Mm. falling apart at the seams. So, you know, how true do I think the statement is? I think it's a long way off. Um, I think we'll, We will make incremental stages once we can get a phone signal working. (laughs) So, if I can follow on from my point, Ben, and actually throw part of that question back to you, you know, if there is the imperative and the incentive and the desire to laden our cities with uh, technology sensors to gather these data points so we can make them smart, Mm. um, from a technologist perspective um, and the people that you're interacting with in the conversations, is there an immediate sort of current barrier to entry in coating our cities with sensor? You know, is it policy or is it actually the technology and the technological processes behind it that's holding it back?
1: Um, I think there is nothing particularly holding it back. Um, um, that's a really interesting question because I have a have got an example which is uh, close to home. Um, so I'm I'm in Bristol, um, and they do actually have a high speed network within Bristol, um, which is called o- um, Bristol is Open. Uh, it's quite an ironic uh, name actually. Um, so Bristol is Open is a network of high speed cables within the city, um, and then on top of that. They have a mesh network of Wi-Fi hubs within lampposts and street furniture within Bristol Centre. Um, So from a technologist's point of view, um, this is really exciting stuff. This is like um, infrastructure that you can get on board with, use for various different things, and it's high speed, connected, and... It is within the city and available. Great. So awesome. We have this stuff. We don't really have to do any of that boring kind of connected um, things. We can talk together over one network. But in that case, the policies are getting um, in front of um, the innovations. So they have a problem where, because this is all publicly funded, that um, they can't really broker privately funded projects within this network Um, what that means is they can get um, publicly funded other projects Um, projects from universities have been involved with Bristol's Open Um, and actually you should probably go and look at their website and talk to them directly because I don't know the full story Um, but in trying to get involved myself I was unable to do so because of the some of the um, bureaucracy in place Um, so And also they are their own gatekeepers in that way as well. So I heard of a project which was running on that network, which was um, a load of um, air sensors, um, pollution sensors, um, throughout this network within Bristol Centre. And because of the feedback they were getting on those sensors, they stopped the project um, and didn't make that information public. So... (laughs) Um, There's a lot of um, really interesting things going on, um, but for some reason the gatekeepers involved, uh, in this case um, the local government, um, are in the way of making things better or more transparent um, for... Um, the public, and I don't know what the long-term plan with it was, but when I spoke to them, they were trying to get more startups involved, but it was almost, um, an impossible, qu- um, ask because of some of the, the, um, the issues with actually being able to get those people, um, through all these hoops to then be allowed to use the network. Uh, and no startup that I knew was going to be able to go f- through that process, so um I think yes, there is a massive issue in this in the way, and there should be a easier way to talk to these organizations and get sign and offs for things or get um you know green marks um to go ahead with some projects testing and show and you know we we can just make this whole process easier um but on the back of that um I th- i'm not sure if it was the same company or not but there is now a bristol based air pollution um sensing network which is based on people who cycle so having um being rebuked uh, on this process um i'm not again i don't know if it's the same people or not uh, but there's now a project um for anyone who wants to wear a sensor on their bike and that um is a sensor which has um, communication to mobile networks, which can then um, com- contribute to the overall air pollution of Bristol. So, innovations are possible, but it's just the local planning is getting in the way of things which, on face value, look really good and really interesting.
0: It's, it's interesting to start that second. You know, in the built environment, one of the questions going across a lot of the major cities is that a lot of uh, urban redevelopment and regeneration is being done by private companies. Hmm. They take over a lot of the public realm. And so you have this cross between a public-private space, which is uh, which is frustrating at times. And it's it's a bit concerning that you don't have free space to, to you know, to, whether it's your constitution or your rules of law. Hmm. But, you know, the reason I reference that is because that's on Wired that's happening in Simplified, the, but in the tool, you are seeing people like um, Intersection, the subdivision of Alphabet, Google, um, their link, uh, I think they're called they their kiosks that, you know, mm. first appeared in New York. This is a private company capturing data. So, you know, their ability to do really what they want as a private company is more quicker. Uh, they can incentivize themselves or other people monetarily. But what you've just highlighted... There is actually there is, you know, when the state does it, which is fantastic that they take the attitude. I know Transport for London are actually a very uh, smart institution themselves on this side. It's great, but there seems to be this limbo in how they can actually become agile in competition to perhaps industry so that the public service can actually represent sort of. What the public needs, rather than relying on the private companies to do what the public wants, or well, only they're only going to do what the private company wants. Um, I, I think it's an interesting kind of analogy to see. You know, it, the purpose of Conscious Cities is often just have these conversations, to try and make aware where are our problem points, where are our, where are our sore points, and it does feel that to have the freedom of. Exp- and the freedom of a digitally connected city, we do need better institutional or public-based um, data capture services that are actually open to interpretation sort of quicker and more agile. And that feels like it's moving in that direction. Do you agree?
1: Yes. <laughs> um, I'm still I'm – still, uh, I think things are moving, but I, I'm still dubious about uh, this connection between um, the public and private and and and, and making those – maybe if that connection not very well attended that the um the public is as you say more agile um and i don't have many connections with um local governments but on um the work that i've been doing i haven't seen a lot of that um so i would say that local governments still need to invest in expertise and invest in um connecting with um projects basically yeah. Don't deny that.
0: I don't deny that at all. Um, you know, a lot of local governments are trying to ensure that people have a house over their head or sorry, yes. a roof over their head. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and mitigating, you know, major health issues. It, it's such a diametrically opposing uh, situation mm. on one side of, you know, how do we radicalise what we do? Um, and then on the other side is, oh, hang on. We have less and less money. How do we solve? It's, uh, it, it is a concern. I think this is where the actual the role of the citizen comes about more. And this is something we spoke about with Patricia Brown in the podcast you mentioned before, For the Conscious Cities, mm. about how, uh, you know, how you need to have the more informed and engaged citizen that perhaps works as a much more collective to <coughs> almost ask permission yeah from a, a local authority rather than ask the local authority to to act
1: yeah it's um... uh, can i can i make a little analogy here actually um, so i have an analogy uh, which m- may be um, appropriate at this point where you have the, the problem that we are facing i think um is obviously uh, aside from um local governments having to do all this uh, other stuff which doesn't necessarily mean improving the local network and just making it work um, in terms of housing and, and uh, all the, all sorts of other things like NHS and, and stuff but I think things like uh, technologies are like weather vanes for example so if you have a weather vane which um, is electronic and can monitor The weather and temperature and moisture, wind speed, and all those things, and you stick it in your garden, right? And that could be hugely useful for an individual household um, if they are um, planning um, and have lots of electronic devices in the house, which can respond to some of that information that can be really uh, useful. Um, But then have having that kind of weather system in next door's garden and then next door's garden, and then the whole street is filled with sensors, which are actually effectively collecting the same information. I think that's where governments can come in and local, um, um, city planning can come in and go, um, we, we can take control of this situation and make it open and useful for more people at much less cost because, um, we can decentralise this, and we don't have to. You don't have to have your own systems for this um, type of scenario. Obviously, that's a very specific um, situation. But I think um, where local governments have a trump card over private companies is private companies want to sell to as many and um, as often as possible, whereas local governments um, don't want to sell at all. <laughs> Just want to um, produce, um, you know, uh, as much as they can in. The most efficient way. So, um, I think it's, it would be useful to look at situations where local governments can come in and, and um, technology-wise, and do things um, actually better than private companies could do because of that situation. Um, and I don't have a whole list of those of examples right with me now, but I mean the weather one is just an easy one. I mean, if you if you if someone wants to pay me, I can probably put together that list. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, moving on. Um, um, continuing on with um city development josh do you worry about um privacy um to do with uh, implementing this sort of stuff in in our surroundings to do with personal um, data and, and that sort of thing is that a worry um that you've seen within the podcast that you've been doing or with the people you've been chatting with as well it's funny it's a 50 50
0: on the people i speak to personally. I'm not that scared, and I don't know whether it's blind optimism or informed mm. optimism from stepping outside the circle. So, I think um, I, I think it's interesting where you know, I think we're getting to a point in society where, for every company who wants to try and get away with something or do a you know or to one up the game to their own advantage, we're we're equally getting a stronger fight back. I, I think you know this is looking at things like the pandemic. Papers and the Paradise papers that have just been coming out, where there, you know, people are willfully leaking huge amounts of information on wrongdoings that they are seeing. Um, not necessarily illegal wrongdoings, but societally unfair. Uh, wrongdoings and that, you know, we're seeing more and more sort of transparency uh, is is coming to the fore and that's making people more aware. And I think this idea that, you know, as soon as someone says privacy and data in a city, we're just, we have this trigger that just makes us think of Orwell's at 1984 and Mm. that we are going to be controlled. But I think public awareness is getting much stronger. And, uh, you know, this is the idea about how to ask questions about your data better, and to be a voice in some form of media representation, and I think an articulated voice, more importantly, uh, on you know on how people should be demanding better transparency on data that's collected and the assumptions and predictions and models that people make with it. So. Uh, I think the more informed consumer that we're seeing in a number of industries that's driving a, whether it be a product change, such as, uh, you know, certainly on our phones, but whether it be, you know, where I talk about, um, it's you know, in offices that people want a better experience with their health and well-being. I think the more informed consumer that's becoming more aware of what can be done with their data and what yeah. should be done with their data is going to change that question that, I, and I think it's that I have faith that people are getting smarter and that that result will inform companies who want the moral high ground. If you look at Bell Pottinger, uh, I believe it is Bell Pottinger, who their the problems that they have faced in South Africa. Uh, the company is, has basically gone into administration. Uh, but caveat that with any corrections that may come after this podcast we see in the news. On, on PR, it is a huge, huge issue they cannot escape, uh, escape from. And uh, it was at an event to do with those in marketing and your uh, their insurance Taken out against companies' um, at PR, and that their reputational risk is so great. And so, I think we will see, um, you know, those with a sense of morals climb to the top and demonstrate that they are better. And I think with that, with an informed consumer, we will end up somewhere better. I think in the short term, we're going to get some mistakes, but I think it is. Uh, I, I'm not scared. I'm. I don't think we should be. I just think we should be. Uh, smarter and more knowledgeable about our data.
1: Cool, well, that's really interesting I think you've got um, an optimistic view there Josh, so that's nice <laughs> <laughs> do, you,
0: do you disagree? Do you, do you see other sort of concerns
1: then? I think uh, more information better infor- um, informed consumers is, is definitely the way forward because everyone is uh, a consumer and also um, a worker so hopefully those people who are who are working on these things are better informed as well and they implement them in um moralistic ways i guess uh, or ways which consider the the moral aspect um and we don't get companies that try and sell you ads all the time <laughs> <laughs> um basically <laughs> Um, can, I, can I ask you a question?
0: Just, you know, the, the idea of morality, uh, mm. you know, in data, uh, you, you might hate me slightly for it, but, you know, you referenced it a little bit earlier, like, the, you know, the trolley problem. So, yeah. the reason I'm picking that up is, um, you know, certainly in the built environment real estate. People are talking about talk about it a lot on uh, the Conscious Cities podcast, because I'm personally a skeptic. Now, I'm a skeptic, and I like to be proved wrong. I love to learn. So, um, I know that you study this, this question a lot more. So, you know, mm. in the built environment, you know, certainly from the actual developer's point of view, if you can reduce the amount of road space and car parking space, yep. in theory, you are opening up development space. You are opening up space for whatever is deemed fit. So, there is a drive, there is an incentive. Um, But I don't think there's actually... You know I- enough awareness on you know timing and reliability. So picking a city, um, picking you know sort of the major cities, such uh, you know such as you know here in the UK, if we pick mm. you know London, Bristol, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, uh, Birmingham, um, or you know cities uh, like uh, New York. Uh, you know I'm talking dense cities rather than mm. sprawls. Where I know that LA is a huge sprawled city, loads yeah. and loads. Yeah, yeah, of cars. very different situation. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess, you know, <laughs> how far are we away from seeing the, the dream come true of autonomous vehicles being so good that there is, you know, no risk to removing uh, car parking spaces? You know, will it be a tech that in five years after, oh, no, we've made a mistake? You know, mm. where are we in this big gamut of uh, autonomous vehicles, in your
1: opinion? Um, well, I think, um, that we're seeing some of that being, um, displayed already. So there's, there's projects in the UK, um, there's one happening in Greenwich at the moment, um, which is with the TRL, um, and they are using pods. Um, so they're kind of car like, but they are, they're almost autonomous kind of trams if you like. Um, and they are based in Greenwich and you can probably go and use one, uh, today, um, and they are transporting you over a very um, a small area. So they have um, um, basically mm. they they are able to uh, map the local area, um, but they aren't clever enough to then go on standard roads and know where they're going and and deposit you in different places. So they they are a very specific um, kind of type of automated vehicle um and sorry you lost the audio a little bit earlier so we're talking about automated cars right um i think i think um, for cities it's actually easier than um for transportation between cities um in in my personal view so um if you have a, a condensed um environment and you have only a certain amount of roads you can quite Quickly, um, and and a lot of the traffic... I think the idea here is that a lot of the traffic is local traffic. So when you have a lot of local traffic, you can actually move the pressure off the local traffic uh, onto things like taxis and buses and then, by extension, automated vehicles. And I think, personally, the best way of doing that is actually we could do that now with the technology we have, um, but in a similar way that we have bus lanes we could extend the bus lanes to be more technologically enabled and um, to make those bus lanes um, uh, physically um, more obvious um, for pedestrians and and just put automated cars in and and use them because I think that technology is good enough for that. Um, But alongside doing that, you'd actually have to do a lot of um, educating the public in order to be aware that these machines were new and they did certain things i think the greatest problem with automated cars at the moment i feel is the technology is going to get good enough but the the populace is not necessarily going to be aware of what that that um functionality is so for example if you had an automated car and someone um was going to step out in front of the road in 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 the road and they didn't see that there was a car coming appreciating what that car is likely to do um, is actually very useful for you to avoid being collided with so for example if I walked out in the road now and a person was coming towards me driving a vehicle I would have a a pretty good um, mental model so you've got mental models of, of different things in the world um, and I've got a pretty good mental model of people and people that drive, and I drive myself. So I've got a pretty good mental model of um, how that person might react. And that that model might include um, braking sharply, swerving in a direction, or running me over. Um, and given that I drive and that maybe I've seen that they saw me, they I can appreciate that it might not run me over. But I'm going to have to make a split-second decision in whether I'm going to, you know walk back, um, stay where I am, jump forward, or or what have you. But when you're faced with um, an automated car and you don't actually know what the functionality of that system is and you don't have a very good mental model of it because it's new and you haven't been educated, you can't actually appreciate what the best um, uh, decision to make is in that situation. Um, So the easiest thing to do would be to not enable the public to interact with them um so to make them more like trains so have their own tracks but any other situation um more lenient to that where they're on uh, more open roads then we have to pair the education with um sorry pair the technology improvements with education of of society because otherwise we're going to get into trouble with people uh uh, not knowing misbehaving or purposely being um, um gaming systems um so i think that's a really important message um that eventually we'll all be educated on what these systems do and if we don't we, we might be in trouble um but essentially oh, yeah. we could do it now <laughs> so that's the answer josh i should have made that more succinct <laughs>
0: yeah. um, thanks for that bit i mean it, yeah. it, it, it's good to get your answer. so I know you look into the you know a lot of the sort of science behind this and the technology behind it. I mean, you know, to the kind of like you know question that I put, I mean, I may have interpreted wrong, you may missed the point, but none of it is actually saying, well, look, we can completely change all the roads. It's kind of going, well, here is an alternative transport method hmm. rather than here is how we you know revolutionise transport it's kind of like yeah. here's how we have a little bit of evolution involved and i, I kind of just question like is is it worth all the time and money and the brain power that's going into it i i'm looking at it and i think i'd much rather have all those intelligent data scientists trying to work on uh, on forms of curing cancer
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> only, I could say that
0: about lots of things, really. Because <laughs> <laughs> if we're just going to have another bus lane equivalent yes. or just other things in the bus lane, it, you know, it, is it, you know, is it replacement or is it displacement of other people? I think there's, I don't know, there's a question that becomes yeah. you know, in, in the circles that you kind of explore about, uh, you know, insurance policy. Yeah. Behind uh, someone who may have an autonomous vehicle and someone who drives a normal, instantly you're then start you know you're creating a class of citizens through how they can perhaps afford to interact with their environment. When okay, we're starting to get there now with things like Mm -hmm. congestion charges in cities that tax people on polluting vehicles. Yeah, Um, another one of these. I think it's it's a big political. I, think,
1: I don't know, you know, it's just this... Yeah, I think that's an opportunity, actually, um, rather than... Um, so I'm going to take the optim- optimistic on this uh, question. Um, so I hear what you're saying, but I think um, it's completely transformative. Um, and I had... I think I was more sceptical, but after talking to uh, lots of people on the Machine Ethics podcast, um, I am a convert, and I think it's going to be transformative. And I think part of that transformation is, like you were saying, congestion charges... Um, and things like that When when there isn't a congestion charge And cars are cheap And um, there's no road tax And the cost of travel is cheap um, And, uh, you know, the transportation for goods is cheap Then... Um, is transformative Um, societally it will make um, so much of an impact and that's not even including the people whose lives will be saved from um, hopefully um, the idea is that it's safer so I think um, when we get uh, poorer people who um, may not be able to afford um, transportation as much um, being able to move around more um, is going to be just another revolution really Um, I don't think There's any reason why we shouldn't be striving for uh, betterment um, in society. But I think, um, like you were alluding to, um, that is a picture that I have in my mind. And and what might actually happen may differ from that. And and the cost of travel might be expensive because it's all private companies or uh, safety aspect is is uh, not as safe because there's lots of different types of automated cars and they don't necessarily speak to one another so I think the governments and and local governments um, have a lot to do in this uh, area and I think um, by the way I'm looking at it the the best scenario would be um, you know a monopoly and the best monopoly is a democratic one so um, if I was choosing automated cars tomorrow um, I would get You know, I'd hope that the government has something to do with it, basically. Thank you. That's a good point. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if that covered what you uh, were were talking. um. No, it does. It it gives a fresh perspective on
0: something that, you know, they're big stories that people are asking of their daily lives they're asking of their cities There, you know there are problems with cars we do have too many cars yeah my I guess something that I look at is are is a different type of car the solution or is it changing the need for transport the solution and I don't have the answer. Neither of those are easy solutions. Uh, I, I just, you know, I come back to this point of how do we ask better questions of yeah. the problems that we're looking at? And I, I I have the pleasure of living a life, and I, this is what I want from the Conscious Cities podcast, is for people to learn, to keep learning from other informed people. Mm. And so that's why I asked you a question, because yeah. every, every time you hear an answer, you hear a different perspective, and that's yeah. how you build it.
1: Yeah, well, uh, that's that is great I mean from my perspective if um if you want everyone to start moving to a an environment or well, more environmentally friendly situation where perhaps that is having electric cars instead of petrol driven cars and I think the easiest way of doing that is to have automated cars and, and then people don't have to actually make the choice and, and um you know afford the new electric car. and Lots of people can't afford to buy a new car. I'd like to buy a new electric Tesla, but I just can't afford to do that. So I think um, the automated cars in this way have a, have a really good prospect for making that situation better. Um, so I think that's really interesting timing almost uh, that these two technologies are coming together. <coughs> Imagine an automated petrol car In the 60s or something That's That's a very different world um, That we would be living in I think Um, So I think we're getting to um, The end of the podcast um, Josh So the last question that I have for you Is what technology developments um, Scare you And equally what really excites you at the moment Cool Uh, I think that they're connected
0: Actually Um, So what scares me Is the overproduction of synthetic food and drugs right uh, and I mean like you know pharmaceutical drugs by that uh, I think we're now actually seeing the effects of uh, pharmaceutical uh, synthetic uh, recreational drugs having an effect on certain aspects of society so I, I mean the way that I look at that when it comes to food is we are organic creatures and you know more and more we're learning and more and more reports and studies demonstrating the impacts of chemicals on our on our bodies and systems um, you know the majority of consumer based food for the Western world does come from a lot of artificial manufacturing. It petrifies young children in particular. Drinking things like Lucasaid, I mean, their their bodies cannot process the chemicals and the high sugar content that is within mm. that. Um, it, it's uh, we were having a conversation the other day about you know are our children more erratic in attention seeking, and I just wonder how much, or how much that is down to poor nutrition, um, but nutrition is not an easy thing to solve um you know the, the the supermarkets have been good in the fact that they have built a reliable service and in many cases a family can access one place and solve all their needs i think it's actually a french mm. philosophy that came up with the idea about the hypermarket yeah. an analogy of a hunter going into the forest to get what they need um and you know that is good however what it has done is obviously squeezed out the uh, the uh, process of uh, local and natural production um, being able to travel so if you are not near uh, local foods or items like that, the economies of scale mean they cannot reach you and you are thus living under sort of a monopoly of um, of, of, uh, of food production so it to me it's it, it it's concerning in how we treat our bodies um you know i think for all the wrong reasons jamie oliver here in the uk was just, just just destroyed for some of this work he was trying to do with um on channel four about getting healthy food in schools and i think he cried in episodes at seeing the level of food that was given by children i think uh, netflix is actually putting out or I think it's they might have bought the rights, but there is a number of food-based documentaries there. So you know, there's a service which millions and hundreds of millions of people I think it is have a Netflix service, so at which point they can see these documentaries. So the information is coming out more and more. You know, to my point earlier about transparency and people wanting and getting this information out there, that we are becoming much more aware of the. the levels of food nutrition in our systems and I think the technology behind that can go one of two ways, it can continue so we get our, our you know we can get our space food that we eat and live and build for that or we flip it and we actually look at the opportunities that uh, hydroponic farming and uh, light, you know, smart lighting systems and humidity systems can allow for people to self-control the production of food uh, at a more sort of demo, you know democratized way and certainly in a more financial way. Mm. Um, I think that technology is going to capitalism, kind of its true meaning of a free market competition. I don't think we have that. We have a very sort of uh, controlled market. It's a perception of freedom. It's not. Uh, And I I think we're getting to a point. I think there's a company called Plenty who've just raised – I think it's plenty of plentiful. Plentiful um, over in the states, they just raised two hundred and fifty million from SoftBank Future Visions. I think it's the Future Vision Fund. Right, yeah. uh, their apologies if I got that exact uh, name wrong. And they look exactly into the production of food. And I think they've they've done their reports that say that sixty to seventy percent of the world's water is used in commercial agriculture. Uh, you know, which is a scary, scary amount. Uh, you know, mm. beef production. Is, you know, yes, we have methane gas on one side, deforestation, but the water requirements as well are so huge uh, that, you know, their aim when they go for, you know, growing vegetables is to dramatically reduce. You know, to go, you know, to, to try and get one percent of the water that's being used instead of you know the the sixty to seventy percent in used in food production. I think that's the most exciting thing that I see, um, and the the opportunity it brings to cities, to to people. Um, and I, I hope it gets the funding and the space for it to be uh, developed.
1: So we haven't really had anyone on the podcast who has referenced the, the food um, pandemic. I don't think. Um, so that, that's really interesting. Um, so it's all about technology used to harness um, food production and locally or to c- control over food production. And
0: efficient, re- efficient uses of very limited and finite resources mm. you know, I-, I think that's that has to be a look to it. I mean, there's no denying, Ben, I am a big foodie and I love food. It's always <laughs> on my mind. I think that might be my, my interpretation. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so coming to the end, I mean, I, I, I tend to ask a similar style of question. Um, it's not necessarily what, what scares or excites us. I think it's um, more on the most effective thing. So um, uh, to date on Conscious Cities, I've been interviewing people who work in the built environment. So I've mm. worked for, um, sorry, I've spoken with People who work in sort of prop tech businesses, uh, speaking people who work in financial lending, um, uh, working people who work in sort of a traditional property development. So it'd be interesting to get your view uh, as you know, shall, shall I say, uh, an outsider of the, the normal industry. Mm. That if you if you looked at the built environment and from that you can pick whatever elements of it you can you can pick civic uh, elements or you can pick you know offices office developments and things like that. Um, if you were to look at it and you know, if you could just in in front of a room of all the big decision makers, kind of scream your point of guys, you've completely missed this great opportunity here. Do you not see what we could do if you just did X and I've got this piece of technology here that's gonna make that happen. You know, when you're looking at it, is this is there a piece of tech that you're going, you know what, this would make such a difference from the experiences that I've had in this <clears> you know, living in cities.
1: I think this might not be the answer you're looking for, but I think the thing that springs to mind is the technology of togetherness. <laughs> um, so I think we have a tendency to make things um, which are creating experiences for small amounts of people. Um, and I think cities are... Um, they they do this as well. And they don't necessarily encourage... Um, participation i think the the more that we can do to encourage participation within our cities the better and i think bristol is a good example of this because the city center is basically um, a large shopping district and shopping is an an activity it can be a leisure activity but it's it's very much a um an activity for few people few individuals or Uh, a solo activity and I think that we need to encourage larger scale activities for people um, whether that's um, sports or games or um, music events or or something like that which um, are easily accessible and I think that's where the technology comes into it where there is um, ways of seeing what the city has to offer um, as you are moving through it Um, which doesn't involve going to Costa or, uh, (laughs) you know, Peacocks or or, or whatever it is. Like, um, I I just don't go into the centre of Bristol because there's nothing for me there um, unless I need a new pair of socks. You know, it's just no need. Um, And actually the leisure activities that I engage with um, mostly consist on, on the outer rim of Bristol. So I think that for me as a person in the world is a real problem and it's a problem of um planning for sure but of um it's a a social issue that you know people always harp on about people aren't talking together as much or aren't exposed to different types of people as much or we're all living this um social media bubble etc etc i think there's a real um technological um Innovations, or well not innovations, that just technologies that we can use to harness and and planning to implement these um areas within cities because we're all humans, we all have to interact with each other at some point, and we're only interacting less <laughs> so um you know as a social being, I think that's a, it's a real shame um and it'd be really lovely just to go down the street and go. Oh, someone's playing tennis and they need a partner to play tennis with. And I have half an hour, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated, um, you know, or or skateboarding is is what I engage with quite a lot. So, you know, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be shopping (laughs) basically. (laughs) I love that, Ben. Uh, I think uh,
0: I think you're going to be joining everybody in checking out what Sidewalk Labs uh, get up to in Toronto, because I think it very much is based around that. I think right. it's uh, it's a wonderful way to look at it, uh, to look at what's the purpose of our built environment. It is to bring people together. So I love yep. that a technologist actually goes, "Oh, we just want to use it to get people together. Uh, that's fantastic. Ben, uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time, Josh. It's been an absolute pleasure. A massive thanks to Ben for his time. If you missed any of his contact details, the best place to get hold of him is via his website, which is benbyford.com, and that's b-y-f-o-r-d.com. Hope you enjoyed this format, and that you got to hear a little bit more from me about some of my perspective on a few things. So, thanks for listening. We're on iTunes, so if you do have the time, please leave us a review, and make sure you're signed up to the newsletter and follow all our social media accounts best way to get in touch with us is sending an email to podcast at thecentriclab.com and feel free to say hi to us via twitter which is at
1: thecentriclab all the best bye